This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called We the People, You the Mob and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2015 at the Barbican in London. Well, welcome to this Battle of Ideas discussion on We the People, You the Mob. My name's David Bowden, I'm the Associate Director of the Institute of Ideas and one of the main organisers of this festival. Um, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time introducing the topic. Obviously, you know what the discussion is about. That's why you're all here. Um, and it's interesting to note that when myself and Rupert first devised this session, it was very much in the context of Ched Evans and, and the discussion over Ched Evans. Then, as the kind of months wore by, and I, I got the panel together and I, was, I sent them a, a note a couple of weeks in advance, I sort of said, well, we have to reflect on the Tim Hunt affair. But also, I sort of said, they may well have been another twit storm before then, so it might be another poor soul has been kind of sort of taken. There's a kind of rapidity and viciousness to um, the way in which people were dealt with online, you know, which is kind of interesting to try and unpick, because um, we all have different attitudes of everyone has hate figures who they don't like, who they want to challenge. Are you part of a mob when you're doing that? Is there a difference between a mob and an angry group of people protesting or campaigning against something? And, of course, in the context... Um, actually, of the discussions that have gone on around the protests outside the Conservative Party conference, where some groups where people say that this is fair game in a democratic society, that people should be able to criticise people going into a, uh, a political conference. Other people say it was a brain mob who was spitting at me and it's anti-democratic. That's the sort of questions that we want to try and unpick. I kind of have a very interesting panel um, to do so who have a, uh, thought a lot about this kind of question, engaged with it, in some cases been on the wrong end of it. Um, so I think that will be interesting. Daniel O'Reilly, uh, sat to my immediate right, uh, is of course better known by his stage name Dapper Lars. Um, it's kind of an interesting experience for me. At the Battle of Ideas, we do a lot on free speech issues, and we do a lot around the limits of offence, and, and Dapper Laughs features in a large number of blurbs and a large number of discussions that I've had over the last couple of months. And so it's quite surreal to actually have Dapper Laughs sat next to me, and I'm delighted that he's come along and wants to speak uh, on a panel and, and engage in public discussion. Uh, to my far right, we have a, a John Coventry, who is the Global Communications Director at Change.org, who are the Global Campaigning Forum. And he has a long background in campaigning for ActionAid and Make Poverty History. I'm kind of really pleased to have um, John here and Change.org involved because I've sometimes been critical of what some of what Change.org does in terms of their petitions. And every time I've argued with somebody from Change.org, I've, I felt like an elitist, an anti-democrat. And I've always found them very articulate uh, uh, proponents, of defenders of what they, what they do, and very always make me think every time I have a discussion. So it's great to have John and Change.org involved. Uh, uh, to a uh, sat between Dapper and John, we have Cathy Young, who is a journalist... Uh, the contributing editor for Reason magazine and a columnist for Real Clear Politics, amongst many others. I particularly wanted Cathy uh, on this panel uh, because a lot of the times when a kind of twit storm kind of kicks off, uh, and you know, I kind of sort of go, well, this is probably just some idiot who said deserves it. Invariably, Cathy will produce a, a kind of an article where she actually goes beyond the headlines an awful lot and kind of has done some really good investigative work on a lot of these kind of issues. And actually, again, always kind of confronts me with a, a different set of information that I didn't know. Don't always agree with it, don't? I, um, but it always is is truthful and makes me think. But at the same time, not entirely averse to to being involved in kind of online mobs against people who you disagree with, I'd say, maybe, that you're happy enough to argue with people uh, uh, online. Um, to my far left, we have Rupert Myers, who is a barrister and a journalist, 
uh, the political editor of GQ magazine, amongst a, uh, many other things, and my co-producer uh, on the uh, debate. So we kind of have to share the blame for it if it all goes wrong, I suppose. And to my immediate left, we have Josie Appleton, who's the director of the campaign group The Manifesto Club, which defends civil liberties in the UK, um, but especially on more unfashionable kind of issues around sort of civil liberties, around alcohol bans, anti-homeless uh, spikes, uh, leafleting measures. Always a very, very interesting organisation because they, they look at a lot of the areas of kind of public life and public policy that others don't look into. And so they do a vital service. And she's also a very thoughtful essayist. And I'd recommend her blog, Notes on Freedom, is that the name? It's always uh, worth reading. And um, that's it from me. I'm, uh, I've asked them to speak for five minutes to introduce where they stand on the debates, and then I'll we'll probably maybe you know, have a bit of discussion amongst them on the panel, but then go pretty much straight out to you, the people, or you, the mob, depending on how it goes. Without much further ado, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm a little bit shy in front of large crowds, so jokes. I love it. Um, it's no bigger than the audience. <laughs> don't make me swear. I think I'm, I'm lucky enough myself, essentially, right, to be able to monetize my fans uh, by having a huge social media following. Three million people on my social media. If I put a tour out, I sell it. I'm lucky enough that majority of those fans are intelligent enough not to, to listen to what they read in the media. What embarrassed me and really upset me about the mob culture, especially on Twitter, is how a journalist could take a piece of footage of me supposedly saying uh, that a, a woman was gagging for a rape, right? Terrible comment, right? When at the gig, right, I'm stood next to... I'm talking about how my TV show was being personified as proven of rape culture, and a woman at the side of the stage said, don't worry about it, my friend Lucy loves you, she's gagging for a rape. And I lean down and say, what did you say? She's gagging for a rape. Now, the right journalist, under the right impression or whatever they wanted to do, right, managed to get that comment, right, and say, that last goes on stage and says, a woman's gagging for a rape, right? So in the space of three days, six-figure six sum, lost, tour lost, TV show lost, everything lost, Twitter, change org, or whatever, petitions. Do you think a pro-rape comedian should be allowed to perform? Right, what are you going to click? You're going to click. <laughs> what are you going to click? No. Fuck me. I get it in every time, every headline. I still got, I've been, I've been to 15 towns on my tour. I'm still on tour now. I'm hungover. <laughs> right? Every town, pro rape comedian comes. Pro rape comedian comes. Are you that stupid that you think I'm fucking pro rape, right? But listen, mob culture, right? Twitter, do you think he should be allowed to perform? Would you allow Dapper Laughs to perform pro rape comedy on ITV? Yes? No? No. Imagine if someone come up to you and said, can I have your credit card details quickly? Can you sign this for me quickly? On Twitter, yes or no? Retweet, right? I might sound a little bit bitter about it because <laughs> I'm fucking skint now. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking, I'm wedged up. But, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's where I sit with it. But don't get me wrong, I do believe there's, there's a place for it. It's a social media. Listen, I use social media to make myself famous. Sharing, liking, right? So I can't knock it. I think there is a place for it, but you need to be well educated about what what you're signing, what what the what the culture is about. And now I'm the poster boy for every anti-rape crisis or 
feminists, if you come to my show, you'd be bored. You wouldn't even find it that offensive. And uh, I think that I was embarrassed by how easily led uh, the UK public can be uh, by the media. So I don't really know how to end that, but fucking thanks for listening. (laughs) John. Yes. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It has dawned on me gently this week that I'm here to answer the evils of the collective evils of the entire internet. So uh, go kind of easy on me. Uh, and thanks, thanks for that. Put us right in the heart of it there, Daniel. Appreciate that. <laughs> I, I love the title of this discussion because working for Change.org, which is a kind of huge, politically neutral, open platform that's become a powerful space for freedom of expression, while bizarrely sometimes being accused of being the opposite, it gets right to the heart of how I feel about the issue. And it seems to me that the accusation of mob mob has become a term used by people with newspaper columns to describe people without newspaper columns when they come together to care about an issue together. And it feels a bit like a kind of socio-political version of the techno panics that have always happened around innovation throughout the ages. And the accusation of mob-like behaviour is an attack on how the internet has made it easier for people to come together around an opinion. And this isn't, of course, it isn't a new thing. So in the 15th century, there was an abbot called Trithemius. And he was... uh, talking about the complexities of manuscript writing in the face of a newfangled invention called the printing press. And he was implying heavily, as many of the critics of our website and of clicktivism generally do, uh, that there can be no purity in something that's so simple. And for among the manual exercises, he said, none is so seemly to monks as uh, as the devotion to writing the sacred text which sounds a bit like some of the criticism we get from newspaper columnists nowadays. And almost every time the masses get access to a world-changing communications tool, the reaction is predictable, right? Does the telephone make men more active or more lazy, said a US education committee in 1926? Does it break up home life and the old practice of visiting friends? And they hadn't even had one PPI cold caller by then either. (laughs) But there is a truth, right? There is a a genuine truth to what our our friends there are saying. The printing press did change uh, stuff in the way that they thought it might. The monks had had a bit more time to do monkish activities other than writing out manuscript. The phone did change how we interact with friends for better or worse, depending on your point of view. But the real issue here, I think, the issue we're all getting to grips with is change and the pace of that change, right? So this is about dealing with the unprecedented society-shifting power of the free and open internet to give anyone, no matter how powerless or how marginalised, a genuine voice on the biggest issues that affect their lives. And we've had, we've seen it thousands and thousands fold on Change.org. We've had FGM survivors campaigning and winning campaigns from the grassroots just down to the internet. We've seen social housing tenants beat hedge funds to keep their homes. We've seen decades-old victims of miscarriages of justice win justice. We've seen this because of the advent and growth of the internet and sites like Change.org. But we've also seen another side to it. We've seen People launching and winning campaigns to have UKIP speaking at university campuses after these kind of ridiculous and slightly terrifying campus bans that are happening. Um, These people have signed petitions saying, we hate UKIP, but we feel they shouldn't be denied the right to wear their views. And excitingly, we've had petitions for Daniel here to bring back dapper laughs to our TV screens. So, you know, these things are happening. We talk about a battle of ideas. This is happening online right now. (laughs) And so while while the web has made this the most powerful time in history to campaign on issues we care about, we need to be take care in over policing those who disagree with us, like the story about Justin Sacco of a bad taste or a kind of just a misconstrued gag is a terrible case to think about. But that includes the use of the very term mob, which is an expression I think has become a shaming device 
in itself, stopping people from expressing a view because they think they're going to be accused of groupthink straight afterwards. So for every so-called mob about which columnists ride their high horses into the moral high ground, there are scores of everyday people doing incredible things online, raising money, challenging the powerful, and delivering lasting real change in their community. And that is the very essence of free speech, which I'm guessing quite a lot of you are quite into. And it's often challenging, and it's not always, well, generally quite often unpleasant. But there's loads that happens on change.org I don't agree with, and there's loads that I do. But it's loud, it's rambunctious and passionate and more inclusive than ever, and that's just how public debate and politics should be. Uh, and it shouldn't be dismissed, I think, as free speech advocates, particularly. It should be loudly celebrated. Thanks. Yeah, I don't think that we should be demonizing the internet. I mean, any medium is really only as good as the people who use it. And certainly a site like change.org can be used for good or for bad. You know, I think that any is certainly Twitter can be used for good or for bad. And you know, I do agree that the definition of a mob is somewhat subjective. I mean, usually if it's people that you disagree with, they're a mob. And if it's people you agree with, you know, there are people organizing for a good cause, essentially. Isn't that the way it works? But the, the thing that I think is worrying about the sort of public shaming trend, and I don't know that it's all that different from what happened in, you know, earlier eras, except that, I, of course, information spreads much faster. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was always more accurate when it spread more slowly, but you know the problem is that we do have these firestorms that can erupt very quickly. Of course, Justine Sacco was uh, one example of that. Uh, if any of you don't know the story, she's the lady who was uh, uh, flying to South Africa, and before her flight took off, she tweeted, uh, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Now, of course, she was, basically what she was doing was she was mocking, you know, the, the sort of, the, the mentality of the white person who thinks that, you know, because they're white, nothing bad can happen to them and AIDS only happens to black people and you. Uh, and, of course, someone took it seriously and thought that she was expressing a racist sentiment. And someone uh, tweeted it out saying, I'm just disgusted by what this person said. And, I and she was, by the way, a PR executive for a record company. And someone said, oh, I cannot believe that someone who works in PR, you know, would be so insensitive as to say such a horrible thing. And you would kind of think that it would give them pause and, you know, make them think, you know, is, are, do they really mean it? You know, is she actually serious? And of course, this woman's life was basically ruined. I mean, she lost her job. She had to go into hiding for a while. Um, and I think in her case, the situation was compounded by the fact that when the firestorm broke out, she was in flight. And at the time, in-flight Wi-Fi was not a big thing. So she was offline. And while she was in the air, you know, completely unaware of what was happening she was being trashed all over Twitter. 
and you, there was this, uh, you know, uh, the, there was this hashtag has just seen Sakhalin yet. So that's kind of the paradigmatic example of someone getting trashed over, you know, what was really a completely innocuous joke. Now I've looked into a, into several other stories. Um, I, I want to give you another example, and this is where, you know, again, not to single out Change.org, but there was a petition on Change.org that actually had inaccurate facts in it. Uh, there was the uh, uh, there was a rape trial in Steubenville, Ohio, in which there were two um, uh, teenage boys who were uh, accused and eventually convicted of uh, sexually assaulting a girl who had passed out while drunk at a party. And uh, they were being sentenced, and you know, one of them uh, sort of broke down in tears, apologizing and talking about how he feels that his life is over. And uh, the reporter who was covering this sort of said that you know it was really disturbing to watch this young man who had such a promising future, and so on. And then she went on to say, and of course we shouldn't forget that a very serious crime was committed, etc. And there were people who felt that she was too sympathetic to this teenage you know, male who was convicted of uh, of what she acknowledged was a very serious crime. But there were people essentially saying in this petition on chain.org said, oh, you know, Poppy Harlow, the CNN reporter, uh, expressed sympathy for the rapist and had, didn't have one word about the victim, which was completely untrue, but that is the way it went out and nobody bothered to correct it. We've had uh, the situation with Tim Hunt, uh, the scientist who uh, made the joke about, uh, you know, women being women in the lab falling in love with men and having men fall in love with them and you know crying when they're criticized again you know huge firestorm erupts there is this assumption that he is actually speaking seriously uh then people come forward and say oh you know wait a minute he actually after that he went on to say well now seriously you know let's talk about the accomplishments of women in science and you know and then there there was a snippet of audio that emerged so he was really pretty much vindicated, except that he still hasn't been reinstated in his honorary post. So, you know, I mean, I'm really not necessarily against people being, and I hate the word called out because it's just become such a horrible you know, cliche, but I mean, I'm not, in, I'm not against people being called out for, you know, saying something horrible or for bad behavior, but, you know, I think that we really should be more careful with the facts, and I think maybe we should have a cooling off period before yeah. we go mobbing someone and, you know, maybe take a little more time to learn what the facts are. So that's sort of my plea for better information. Yeah, <laughs> Rupert. Well, uh, I, I don't understand Justine Sacco's joke because as a white person, I suffer from all kinds of terrible incidents on a regular basis. Um, I also, John says that we're engaged in a techno panic I've never been able to distinguish that from house music. Um, <laughs> but I'd, I'd really like to start. Um, Dave, very, Dave, Dave has very kindly shared some of the credit for this. Um, the only person in this room who you won't hear a great deal from is the person who put it all together. And I think we ought to give Dave a big round of applause for, for, for doing this. Having given him that, the title is horrific. <laughs> because uh, we are not we the people and you the mob. Um, you uh, and we suffer from the same problem, and it's a problem caused by this. Uh, it's a problem caused by this for two reasons. The first is that 
it symbolizes the level of opportunity that we all have to change our lives and the frustration that comes from that opportunity being missed. But also, secondly, because it gives us a power um, that comes from the reduction of the state and greater liberalism uh, that uh, we use in totally arbitrary and unfair way. But firstly, the opportunity. So we've grown up, everybody sitting here, and, and, and live in an era where unlike any other era before in time, we can contact anybody instantly. We can find out anything instantly. We can change anything instantly. Any piece of information we want is at the touch of our fingertips. And what that offers or should offer is an unparalleled, unrivaled world of possibility. And the tragedy, of course, for almost all of us is that this hasn't changed our lives at all. Um, that it hasn't made us into the gloriously brilliant people that we ought to be. It hasn't turned us transformationally overnight into um, who we would aspire to be. I've had this iPhone success for 24 hours, and I'm not running the country. And, and I just don't... <laughs> and, yet, and yet I could, right? Because it could tell me anything. And I think that, that disconnect between this 21st century world of opportunity and very much 20th or 19th century lack of actual physical real opportunity creates a huge disconnect and frustration that is manifested online. Um, it's manifested on social networks. It's manifested on change.org and every other petition website because we're all mad as hell. And suddenly we have a tool that allows us to express that but not really do much else about it. So the second thing that this allows us to do, um, and this really is, is an ironic thing, is that the internet and the technology around it has reduced state control and liberalized freedom of expression. Now, what has filled the gap, the void created by the state no longer being there to control everything and decide what is right and what is wrong? Where has liberalism taken us? Well, it's taken us to a place where we all get to decide. It's not the state's role to censor us. It's not the state's role to say A is good, B is bad. It's all of ours. Now, much as you might think that state censorship is a terrible thing, at least it's transparent, at least it's semi-accountable, at least it's kind of predictable. What we've, been, what we've replaced it with is a form of liberalism in which we all get to choose at any one point what is wrong, what is outrageous, who should get fired, what is offensive. And so... What's replaced freedom within state constraints is liberalism, but with a, a quixotic, ever-changing group of people chasing after you with the power of communication to shut you down. What's replaced one state organism that says, this is right, this is wrong, is a, an ever-shifting sand of billions of people who collate and coalesce around particular incidents and particular people. But the problem that I have with things like change.org is it claims to be politically neutral. And I've got to be nice to, to John because he's bought me and Dan lots of beers before the session started. <laughs> but of course it can't be because it operates within the laws of the land. And the laws of the land aren't politically neutral because they adopt certain moral positions, they adopt certain views. And it can't be politically neutral uh, to have just groups of individuals collect together over specific tall poppies, particular individuals like Ched Evans, like Daniel O'Reilly, like Tim Hunt. And instead of addressing, as the state would, the 
global problem or the general problem fairly and across those people, it attacks particular individuals. So I blame, I blame the phone. And, and the last thing I'll say, because I know I'm running out of time, is that, yeah, it can be too easy to do something. It can be too easy to get someone fired. It can be too easy to call someone a rapist. Why? Well, uh, as Mark Twain would put it, because the truth is still doing up its laces while a lie has got halfway around the world. So the truth will always slowly follow in that technically inastute way of the 20th and 19th century, while the lies, while the emotion, while the drama, while the bullshit is there tweeting, clicking links, and, and, and producing uh, change.org petitions. And that's the problem I, wa I want to hear from you, the people, today. Thank you. Yeah, I think the, the Twitter storm is quite different from previous kind of democratic um, or kind of collective forms of action. You know, in the 18th century, London was, was full of so-called mobs. And what they were really about were groups of people um, going to smash up someone's house with whom they agree, disagreed. And, and that person would defend their house. And whether that was rich men um, in uh, St. James's or, or uh, radical printers or whatever... Essentially, there would be uh, spontaneous kind of gatherings and you'd have a kind of physical fight. And that was actually quite, quite honest in a way. And there was always something at the, at the root of it, you know, whether it was the problem with bread prices or uh, the support for Jacobins or whatever. There was always uh, a political issue at the, at the root of it. And there would be kind of a spontaneous gathering of people and they would go and, uh, you know, have a, have a fight in the streets. And that would, that would kind of um, be the way that it was, it was enacted. And that was all fair enough. I think... Um, Twitter storms uh, are quite different and, and uh, uh, a lot worse. Because um, I think that really what they come down to, I very much agree, it's essentially about the handing of an individual. And it's, so I think all these, you've got activists, feminists, anti-racists or whatever, and their anti-racism or their feminism consists of looking for someone who they can make an example of looking for someone they can expose. And in a way, that kind of exposure of a person, you know, very much destruction of a person, you know, they really want them to lose their jobs, their lives, their families, etc. Um, is, is, that per, is, is the activist's statement of principle. So they can say, I'm a feminist because I'm not that person. You know, I'm not Dapper Laughs. I'm not, um, I'm not Tin Hunt. And essentially, uh, what, what the whole Twitter storm about is really about uh, the performance of having an opinion. So that's why there's a kind of headiness around it and a kind of self-righteousness around it. It's that kind of, you know, I'm a self-righteous person because I'm not that person. And so it's a kind of, it's very much the ritual of public life now and the way that debates happen is people try and find someone of the opposite camp to hound and to, to make an kind of example of. And that really is the way in which they say, I'm so sensitive because um, I'm not that person. And I think the have, has Justine landed, yeah, example was very indicative because really what that was was about people uh, enjoying the power of insight over an individual that she was ruined and she didn't yet know it. You know, I think that that, that, that's the kind of, there is a kind of enjoyment of the collective experience of, of um, uh, you know, of essentially everyone knowing what's happened apart from her. And I think and there's a kind of coerciveness of, um, of the formation at that, at that kind of point. I think that the, the, what happens with the individual is they're almost deliberately invented um, because essentially it doesn't matter whether Daniel made that joke or whatever. It, it doesn't matter for the crowd whether Tim Hunt is really a sexist. It, they're just playing the role of, 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 of a kind of figure which, against which everyone else can define themselves. So actually, no one really cares. And there was a case of, uh, of um, uh, a woman in America who tweeted, um, she was complaining about bongo players in her neighbourhood, and everyone kind of... <laughs> 
replied and said, oh, you know, it's another white woman, white tears, you know, hashtag white tears, another white woman complaining about bongo players. She said, well, actually, I'm black. And, and basically, uh, the, the person said, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, forever publicly shamed on Twitter. Basically, for the purpose of Twitter, she'd be made, made uh, white because, in a way, that's what she needed to be because that was the thing that everyone else needed to... That was the story that they needed. So I think that really what you have is... What this reflects is not necessarily liberalism or anything like that, but I think what it, it reflects is really the shallowness of political opinions, that you can define them only in the negative against this other individual and, um, and only as a kind of individual question. You know? So I think feminism in the old days, they would be going off founding feminist colony, colonies, um, you know, calling for reforms, writing long books about the kind of social structure of sexual relations or whatever. You know? I mean, there, there was a kind of whole world that was feminism that kind of did its stuff and similarly anti-racism, all the other kind of political kind of camps. And what happens now, I think, is that all those... There's, there's no independent existence for political opinion except for I'm not that person. I, in shaming them, I show I'm a feminist. So I think that's the kind of drive, the kind of drive behind it. And actually what it shows is the insubstantial nature of, of all these various opinions, that they're just this kind of performance. Um, and also the lack of sociological imagination. The idea that, that rape occurs um, or that social inequality occurs because of the comments of a particular comedian or the after-dinner joke of a particular scientist. You know, the idea that that in some way, those things make, make uh, inequality happen. It's just that complete lack of soci sociological imagination and pinning everything on the individual. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> thanks. I mean, uh, Rupert's sort of right. It can be frustrating being a chair sometimes because I have lots of questions that I want to try and raise, but I'm also conscious of the fact that I want to allow the audience to have time. So I can, if I see if there are any uh, hands, if there are any sort of uh, questions that people want to ask. Meaning can only ever be understood in context. And when you have Twitter, you have minimal context. So in actual fact, what we've done is we've created... Um, a, a kind of ability to say something without ever being able to make any real point and without there being any real debate there. So actually Twitter is a kind of lowest common denominator. It allows everybody to have a voice, but all we end up with is a lot of screaming and no one can hear the still, calm voice of reason. What do the panel think about the controversy over the killing of Cecil the lion? And do you think it was right that the, the man who killed the lion was, was outed? And also just worth something to think about, how would that contrast if it just been a local... We'll take a few more. ..a local tribesman who'd killed the lion because he was protecting his goats or sheep or whatever? Although I agree with the kind of the mob mentality that we've kind of talked about, there is the other side of the issue where you have social media platforms, uh, particularly Twitter and other kinds of um, media, that uh, give anonymous people a voice to actually share their stories. So there have been places where yeah, YouTubers, for example, have been um, shown to be... Uh, sexually abusive to their um, uh, members of their fan base who were underage. And because of social media platforms, they've actually been able to share their stories and that 
um, kind of abuse of power has come to light and without the social media platform that they've had to give themselves a voice they haven't been they wouldn't have been able to um, share their story and things wouldn't have been able to come to light so there is that other side of the issue. I want to say that I disagree with uh, the idea that mob and people is just a matter of perspective. I think mob from the examples you've discussed is an organization that has coercive power over people and which it can exercise very easily. Whereas the people, their coercive power is exercised through institutions, through formations of the state. So it takes, it's, it's, it's a, quite a sharp distinction, I think, that's worth thinking about. And it fits perhaps with uh, both Rupert's and Josie's analysis. Thank you. It says in the little booklet that we've been given for this thing that the masses play such a minor role in mainstream politics. And surely we finally got a platform that enables the masses to have a big role in mainstream politics. And suddenly the sort of 20%, 1% at the top who've always had a massive opinion and a massive effect have suddenly realised, oh, my opinion's not going to be worth as much anymore. So maybe they're scared of this and are trying to mock it. And they use a few, albeit popular, but few examples such as Twitter to say the whole system of the internet and the phone are not valid as a way of communicating people's political opinion. And I think that actually places like uh, Change.org prove that it is a way for people to make changes and a way for the masses to communicate their issues that they believe in. Well, I thought it was really interesting what you said about your phone not making you a better person. (laughs) It does look good. And I thought it was really interesting what you said, Johnny, about um, communication and technology. It's plus a change. So are we hinging too much of the debate on technology and is that derailing a bigger question about human nature? Because is, it, is this about being judgmental and lacking compassion? If you look back at the Inquisition, tens of thousands of people were tortured and killed by the mob rule. That The Inquisition may have been handled by the church, but it was the villagers who turned people in for being witches. I just have a short question, and that would be, do you think people are turning to Twitter because they've lost faith in our independent judiciary system? If I go to the man who spoke earlier referring to the Cecil case, the guy who killed the lion wasn't prosecuted. Is Twitter allowing us to have another way of prosecuting people which hasn't been available before? Yeah, just a quick question. Surely it's the response of institutions. Um, it's a bit of an old one. Emily Thornbury lost her job as a cabinet minister for a tweet about white vans. So surely it's when people are losing jobs from things like a government cabinet minister yeah. that we need to start questioning things. Daniel, do you want to jump in first? Yeah, I just want to say a couple. I want to say a couple of things. First of all, uh, about the line, Cecil the line, right? Listen, fashionable. Very fashionable thing to be talking about because it's a lion, it's cute, it's a lion, shouldn't have been killed, it's fashionable. What about all the black people that are getting killed in America by the cops? Yeah? Right? There's so many people getting fucking killed at the moment, yeah? So many situations that are a lot more... But that was fashionable, that was nice to talk about. You know what? I love a lion, so I'll retweet it. Yeah, so what, what I'm, I'm very passionate about this because it really affected my life, right? So, like you, like to, to, I appreciate that it was out of order about the line because the line had a name, right? <laughs> yeah, what about the, the, the you know, all the other videos that we're seeing and, uh, and other stuff, right? Okay, fine, yeah, that was fashion. I love lions, it's fashionable, right? And then you're at the top, you're saying about YouTubers, blah blah blah. You're right, social, no, you're completely right. Social media is a great platform for us to voice our views on what's going on, but without being disrespectful to you as an audience, you're not educated in what you're talking about when you click. 
yes, I agree with it. Yes, I think this. You're not doing your research. Not you. I'm not saying you. <laughs> but, but what I mean is I'm really passionate about this because 60,000 people signed a petition about me saying, uh, do you want a pro-rape comedian on ITV2? Now, who the fuck is pro-rape? Rapist. Rapist, okay. <laughs> All right. You're such a dick. Do you understand my frustration? So I think, from my, just from my perspective, I think unless you're educated, don't use the mob, the mob, yeah? Okay. And shut up, fuck's sake. <laughs> John? I mean, I think to bring some of those points together, I mean, I'm particularly interested in the Emily Thornberry point, which I think is a fascinating one. We've become obsessed with gaffes. Like, I'm going to take the kind of converse opinion. Like, it's nuts. There is no time for considered thought and opinion anymore in public life, and that's a really destructive thing, and I completely agree with, with that. And I, like, outside of... Like, it's a bad thing that that happens. But also, I agree with uh, this one here. The, the fact is the, in, the internet holds up a mirror to our humanity. It isn't something that's been invented. People standing in corners slagging off people they don't like is not something that came along around the internet any more than petitions were invented by us. The fact is it magnifies it and the internet is very young and we're getting used to how to use, to use it. And something that would be excellent would be for kids in school to learn about how we develop good social norms online and we don't think it's, a mate, don't think it's excellent to either threaten to rape people or slag them off if they don't agree with us. That would be quite a good thing for people to learn in the modern context. So I think in general we have to be sensible and understand that the barrier between on and offline is more blurred than it ever has been and is going to continue getting more blurred. And we live our lives. Someone talked about context here. I think it was an interesting point. But actually, you're right, there isn't much context on Twitter. But people don't just go on Twitter unaffected by anything that's happened in their life or they've seen on the news. The stuff completely, it all completely interacts with each other. And we need to remember, you know, and the other, the other point was about people not having understanding of stuff they hear. We are told stuff by politicians all the time that has the spin on it that they want to put on it. People, we have conversations with our parents when they say, you know, don't do this because the dummy fairy will take your dummy or whatever. Like, people lie to us all the time, right? That also isn't just a social thing. And people's understanding yeah. needs to be better. I think people are more conscious, consume more news, and understand more about public life than they ever have done, and I think that's because of the internet. Cathy, uh, do you want to pick up anything? Uh, yeah, I, I was also very interested in the comment that was made about, you know, is this really about the internet or is it about human nature? I think if we look at historically, <laughs> you know, the history of gossip, the history of sort of mob justice or, you know, people's lives being ruined by rumors. A lot of that happened, especially in small communities. And it's kind of interesting that historically the city was considered to be a kind of place of much greater freedom from that kind of, you know, mob opinion or, you know, or a communal opinion because of the relative anonymity of the city. And of course, now with the internet, we really do have a global village which is often meant in a positive sense, but it also recreates the sort of more negative aspects of the village where everything is everybody's business and, you know, everybody knows or thinks they know what everybody else is up to. And, you know, and whereas, you know, in the past, it could be people in a small town sort of saying, oh, you know, I saw a strange man coming out of this widow's house, you know, she must be having an affair. And, you know, and then suddenly she's the town slut, basically. And, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily matter that this man may have been like a visiting relative or whatever. And, you know, so now we have the same kind of situation, but it's replicated on a global scale. 
at much greater speed yeah. and with a much greater number of participants who may be living on the other side of the world, you know, and and sometimes I think with much more destructive effects as well, although, you know, not necessarily because, of course, in the village, mob justice could actually take a physical form of people coming after you with pitchforks. And, you know, today you may lose your job or, you know, but at least usually you don't end up being strung up from a tree. So, you know, I, I think, I guess there's something to be said for the Twitter version of mob justice in that sense. That's a great case. That is yeah, a great case. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So. Twitter, better than being hung from a tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. anyone from Twitter in here can have that for nothing? I would have yeah, yeah, right. so, that. Some days, right. I've got to say, on some days, yeah. I think Dan would agree that Twitter is not better than being hung from a tree. Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I think there's a problem of confirmation bias on the internet. You know, you don't need to know whether the dummy fairy exists or not. If you're inclined to believe that the dummy fairy exists, you're going to retweet a change.org petition calling for him to be sanctioned. Um, secondly, secondly, uh, in relation to the question of whether or not Cecil Alliance treatment would have got any more attention if it had been killed by a local tribesman, uh, rather than Walter Palmer. I think the key question there is, would the local tribesman also have been a dentist? Um, because I think, I, I, I think that the, often, often the, the, the topics that get to the top of our agenda are the one that really, really upset us on the most number of levels. If Daniel O'Reilly had been, you know, Oxbridge educated or a woman, I don't think there would have been the same level of outrage over those comments as there was because he's a white young man and a bit of a lad. I think that often, again, confirmation confirmation bias he is very much ladies if you're interested um, it, confirmation bias feeds into our decision making um, I, I want to get through this very quickly thirdly, yes of course Twitter has minimal context it's 140 characters, it's like judging authors on the, on the basis of one randomly selected sentence in a book um, Good faith has been lost from the internet and from public spaces. You'll find one tweet from one person. Nobody will be bothered to go through their timeline and establish whether they really mean this. Look at what happened to Giles Corrin when he made that joke about hoping that Leia Sadu would, would quite, quietly hoping that Leia Sadu would shag him. You know, you, you didn't, any, nobody went back and saw that he criticized the Bond films for being anti feminist. No one went, looked at his timeline. They just said, what a rotter. Fourthly, there's a gentleman at the back there who was saying, well, isn't it great that people can suddenly do stuff really quickly and really easily? Um, look at the Labour Party. Sometimes you can make things too easy. And in this case, allowing people to vote without having made them like a member of the party for any length of time turned out to be a massive strategic error. Um, it is possible to lower barriers to making decisions and to influencing things to a point at which actually that's counterproductive uh, as the Labour Party is suffering to their uh, annoyance. And finally, of course, this is related to tech. And it's related to tech for two reasons. Firstly, the walls we all used to be able to put up around ourselves are disappearing. So we can all see each other. We can all get more jealous, more annoyed, more upset because our private lives are diminishing and our public lives are increasing. But secondly, also, because every time we say something now, we're not just saying it to the bloke next to us. There's an amplification. Um, tech allows people to say something that millions of people can see. So this all, the, the, what, what chemists would call a catalyst. Technology is a catalyst to argument. It's a catalyst to dispute. It's a catalyst to confirmation bias. It's, it's the, the thing that allows us all to get so much more angry so much quicker. Okay, Joseph. 
I don't think that just because something is a kind of spontaneous collective action, it's therefore bad. Um, I think in many ways, the kind of the kind of uh, spontaneous things in history were actually the braver, the more truthful kind of moments than those that kind of went through committee meetings and resolutions. You know, French Revolution started because a guy uh, stood up on a table in a, in a cafe with a pistol in each hand and his hair flying, said to arms, to arms. You know, he didn't go through a committee and pass a motion. Oh, yes, next Tuesday, we're going to go to arms. There was a, there was a moment and, and he caught it and, and kind of Paris exploded. So I think that actually, you know, Le Bon said about, about, about crowds, you know, they, they, they're, they're criminal and they're heroes. I think they can make you better or make you worse. And I think that things like bravery and courage, he always said that they were found in, in, in kind of crowd forms. I think that, that's true. So I think there's something spontaneous. It, it doesn't make it um, worse. I, I don't, so I don't think it's about spontaneity. I don't think it's about things being easy. I don't even think it's about uh, being a mass, a mass a thing about the masses or the people or, or, or about the internet. I mean, the, rhythm, the thing that you see in a Twitter storm, you, you see in, in, in Parliament in the rhythm of politics. This is about politics as a whole. So the kind of uh, what each party is actually doing is also trying to find a member of the op- opposite party to ruin. You know, they're trying to find someone with a sex scandal, someone who... Uh, got his wife to take his speeding points. I mean, God, who hasn't done that? Um, you know, it, it is... Or was it just me? I don't know. But, I mean, the point is, this is, this is, this is nonsense. Everybody, all these journalists kind of whipping themselves off about it. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. He did, did nothing, you know. But the, the point is that they were enjoying bringing him down. You know, it was man brought, to, down to, brought down to earth. You know, that was the whole thing. There was someone high and we brought him low. And that's the rhythm of politics. It's not, it's not just about a mass form. It's, it's how parliament functions as well. Um, I think in terms of the internet, I think you can... You know, you change.org a lot. Um, I think that the technology doesn't create these patterns. Um, It perhaps amplifies them. I think that the the, the trending um, element and the like and dislike, you know, those do structure social relations in a way. You know, the fact that the trending thing allows a crowd to form as an automatically generated function in the sense that it just because it tells you where everybody else is, you don't have to know who they are. Uh, you don't have to have any relationship with them. You don't have to know what they think. It just t- so the, the collective is a sheer force of numbers, which is automatically generated by the system. I think that so there are certain things about these systems, but in every case, they actually reflect a propensity within social life, and they might amplify it, but they don't create it. So I think uh, it, it's never it's never just about the masses or the internet, or whatever. It's it's about the decline, the weakening of political opinion across the board, whereby the only thing that you can say in terms of standing for something is attacking another person. And I think that that is something you see in Parliament and everywhere, and that's that's a kind of part of it, the, the problem for me. I, I, I personally think that um, part of the uh, the reason why Twitter storms can be generated so quickly is the uh, is the culture of you can't say that, as, as Mick Humes argued very, very cogently. Not only, you, not only you can't say that, but you can't say that. Uh, so, um, <coughs> and then that makes it regardless of context. So, you know, if you perform a joke or make a comment that contains the uh, offending word, phrase or, or expression, even if you're, uh, you're satirising it, uh, you can be kind of hoist by that, uh, by that petard. And then that seems to me that makes it kind of incumbent on us all to exercise tolerance, I think, as people have, have said, and, you know, investigate uh, for ourselves uh, and make, kind of make our minds up uh, about, uh, about what was said and the context in which it was said, and to uh, challenge these kind of pernicious uh, speech codes uh, that serve to restrict uh, what, uh, what, uh, what we can say and, as a consequence, what we can think. People who uh, often defend sort of Twitter or change.org often make, I think, a fundamental confusion, which is that they say it gives power to the powerless, and it doesn't. It gives influence to the powerless, which is a very different thing. 
Power is what people as individuals exercise collectively. Influence is what people exercise as a mass. And this, I think, is where I disagree with Josie because <laughs> there is an issue that does need to be confronted around the mass. And it's actually captured in your example of the French Revolution where uh, some guy stands on a table and starts waving pistols around and... Uh, you compare that to the sort of Declaration of Independence in the beginning of the American Revolution, which almost was revolution by committee, where people sat down for a long time talking about things and arguing them. And really, like, history, as much as I love the moment of the French Revolution, history gives us the answer as to which one is ultimately more effective as an organising tool to, ch to make sort of lasting change. The first time I saw this kind of event happening before the internet had decided on the term Twitter storm, I called it Twitter snitching. And I think that's actually possibly an important distinction, and it explains why we've got someone here from change.org, which is a tool for the petitioning the authorities for redress of grievances. It's not, that's not something a mob does. Mobs burn people's houses down. And I think what's happening, in a sense, an awful lot, though by no means all of this kind of activity, particularly something like the attack on Tim Hunt, was very much about saying we the people demand that the uh, proper authorities meet out exemplary punishment for what was actually, even if you accept Connie St. Louis' story, a very minor offence. And to me, this is like, I mean, if I go to my mother and say, mummy, mummy, my sister is saying mean things about me on the internet, please punish her, I expect to be called the thing... No. And if I did say it, I would expect the derision that. Can I just ask? Can I just ask something? Are you are you are you trying to say that um, that uh, change.org doesn't infer that if people use change.org, it's not mob culture? Is that what you're trying to say? I'm trying to say that people are using change.org are asking the proper authorities what, what if, to rid them if, of this turbulent comedian. What, what if the people that use what if the people that use change.org right aren't intelligent enough right to read an article about a comment, yeah, and not decipher or do their research themselves, then click a link to say, yeah, let's get his... To, I'm getting, making... Pers this is personal, obviously. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, what I'm trying to say to you is, what if the mob... What if, what if change.org is not educating the people that are using it well enough with the with, with, with uh, about the thing? Is that is that not mob yeah. culture? Yeah. I mean, There's a difference between sixty thousand people trying to burn your house down and sixty thousand people file going to the proper authorities and filing police reports. It's saying the please. Is your house only costs say hundred thousand to rebuild. Your career is worth far more than that. So six and a half million, you can. Is that rubles? Freedom of speech, though, yeah? <laughs> You're right. Free speech allowed and all that. Um, but that's the thing, I think it's, it's worth. No, not you. Not you. No, not you. Calm down. <laughs> hey, I mean, it, it is kind of worth trying to sort of unpick that, that Sorry, difference yeah. between a kind of. When a, a mob is an atmosphere, I think around there is of, the idea of a censorious culture. I thought the, the question about a, uh, whether something can have a chilling effect of you can't say that is obviously not the same as a real mob burning down the house. I just think it's it all about edu I think it's real. all about just being educated in what you're. Listen, I'm all for it. If something's wrong, let's all get together. But you just need to be educated in what you're saying. And and personally, myself, from my experience, I've just been embarrassed for the British public and watched them get together on a subject that was clearly wrong and uh, 
I'm all for change.org. Like you've like you I'm said. All for you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> get another petition. Get me back on ITV2 then. Fuck's sake. <laughs> Well, I think we've come to the conclusion now that context removal hurts everyone through Twitter. You say you go on The Daily Show and you watch Trevor Noah and he'll say a joke about black people and it's hilarious. But I go on YouTube and say it and it's extremely offensive. Mm. So we, the issue is then, who does the responsibility lie with? Is it the person entering the Twitter medium where they understand they're not going to have the context or is it, is it with the audience member having to research it? See, uh, Daniel's actually, sorry, uh, Daniel's um, commented on the fact that he believes that the people should, that have signed this um, change.org um, petition should have researched it. But I'd argue in a different sense, it's not your fault, it's the person that's gone on Twitter hasn't provided the context with it. I think that person has the responsibility to provide the context if they're going to enter a medium where they're limited to 140 characters instead of unleashing this comment that says that he's all for rape, which isn't the case. That's not the context that's been applied. Then we have to decide, do we then enter Twitter or do we accept that the medium that we are accessing yeah. possibly aren't going to know what they're talking about? Uh, much of the conversation has been about the effect of a mob, uh, Twitter acting as a mob. But just a sort of point of correction for the gentleman at the back, who was extolling the virtues of the uh, French Revolution over the American one. It's uh, a pertinent point to realise that the initial French Revolution very soon has degenerated into a terror. And that's what happens when you actually get a mob. As a reviewer of comedy, it's a very um, interesting one for me, this. I mean, it's very, very difficult because, on the one hand, Twitter effectively doesn't really change anything any much more than perhaps opinion polls do, as we saw with the general election. They're all saying people are going to vote this way, but it, it completely went differently. Um, I suppose for, for the likes of Daniel, you'd rather have a, a change.org survey saying these are the votes, but you've got to have read the context beforehand when you have had a, some solid articles, a bit like on the Battle of Ideas website, and people have to have read it and then vote, and then you can know, OK, they know the facts. Not quite sure why ITV bought that. If you, I don't know if you explained to ITV the full context, because having read the articles and know the context of that joke, which it took you about a minute to explain, you know, a big station like ITV should, should be doing their homework on things rather than killing people's careers temporarily. I see you've, you've come back. Um, and, and, and also it's, it's down to, you know, the public, even people like me, like reviewers, to put the record straight. I went yeah. to see Reginald D. Hunty. He told a joke about a friend who'd been raped, very sympathetic, and then he, he throws in an, an aside at the end, which is the punchline that comedians do. Somebody wrote a blog saying, oh, Reg tells this rape joke. And I, I was there, and I put it up, you know, we went to town in a debate online, but that's important because... You know, when you put that headline, yeah, anybody can twist something if they want. If you're a feminist and you, you're going in with an agenda, I'm going to get this guy. It's down to other people to um, put the record straight, really, but it's difficult because the mob, the mob can rule. Yeah, so Dapper, you seem to place like, all the blame uh, for this on the mob exclusively. Do you hold like, any resentment to ITV2? Uh, they're the ones who uh, backed out when 60,000 no, people or whatever. Like this, this is so. Let me respond to this. Yeah, listen, ITV, ITV, ITV are a brand, right? ITV are a brand. Listen, let's just let's be sensible. If there's enough people that are upset with the brand, they've got to protect their own interests, right? So at no point at any time did I think that that, that, that my management or ITV are being out of order. I was immature enough to talk about something that could be taken out of context. So the blame lies on myself, right? The blame lies on myself, but. 
it's in, like I keep saying, it's embarrassing how a mob was able to be formed around it. But that's a good question. No, I can't. I can't blame the TV station because to me, it's like uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty it's pussy. Like, do you know what? Uh, pretty do you know pussy what? to just like you know pull what? out the show like because 60, of that. Thousand people but... signed a petition. Right, I hit half a million people every day on my Snapchat. I get forty million views. Forty million views on my videos. Forty million views and sixty thousand people sign a petition. So I feel your pain, my friend. <laughs> but on that, just, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come back at you in a minute. But I'll so let the another way of looking at these things rather than just mobs and kind of violent groups going after someone. And that is kind of immediate, real-time consumer choice within a free market, right? ITV are a brand, as you say. You've got a massive social media following. There's a rapidly growing group of other consumers who have other interests. ITV make a choice within that market about who they think is the most important group of consumers to their brand. And there are, you know, no one ever calls the other, no one calls your followers a mob or the, the people who signed your petition a mob. And I think that framing is fascinating. People put their opinions forward and say, I don't want this on my TV. There's loads of people, more people, lots more people who said, I do want this on my TV. I would be interested to see who, why, what, the thought processes at ITV2 that went for that decision because well, it is a consumer choice within a marketplace. Well, and that's quite, something. It's quite simple. The word rape, the word rape, yeah, gets clicks. The word rape gets clicks. If you put pro rape comedian, you'll click. You'll read the article. The word rape gets clicks. The word rape goes viral. And as soon as that happens, ITV2 are like, do we want ITV to be associated with rape? No. I, I'm gonna, I just want to try and squeeze in as many questions as possible. Uh, no, I just want to come back to a point somebody raised earlier on, actually, about the uh, kind of the dis- disorientation of institutions. That's definitely a part of, the. Uh, I think, the narrative that Josie was talking about. I don't know. If it's happened already that one of these institutions has gone, put your pitch folks away. You know, it, 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 this person is keeping their job. I don't know. If that's happened, I've missed it. Um, what conceivably would happen if that did? Would they put the pitchforks away and go, well, we had a laugh, we raised a few virtual pitchforks and, and we'll move on to something else? Or Obviously, we're, we're talking about a much deeper malaise here, but I'm just wondering, you know, in theory, what, what, what would happen? I, mean, I think in most of these cases, people keep their jobs. I think people get accepted as the rarity compared to the... Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they get to keep the jobs at the point after which people have forgotten that they demanded that they lose them. Yeah. I suppose that's, that's just, another. Yeah, the idea that listen, someone sends five hundred tweets and someone automatically loses their job, I don't think is a representation of what's happening. Yeah, but, it, but there's still reput- reputational damage, though, as well. I mean, it's it's, it's anyway. I, I think Daniel, you're letting ITV two off a little bit too lightly here because I, I think there is some real institutional cowardice now, yeah, where you can have a very you can have a very small number of. <laughs> Somebody might put him on the air in the future. Yeah, plus this is getting filmed. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, more no, broadly, on, my point is that there is institutional cowardice now where if, if you get, you know, a bit of heat on Twitter for a short period of time, then people like you can have your yeah. entire careers ruined. Yeah, I think I, it is important for the people, you know, ITB2 and your management to actually stand behind you yeah, and okay, to actually I, say I'm these 60,000 people got it wrong. Let me, no, let me respond. I, 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 no, no, I want to try and get as many questions in, but I'll give you a chance to respond to some of these things. But I do just want to make sure can you just pass it? I think there might be someone else in that corner. Uh, we were all talking about Twitter and the mobs but in relation to that, but my question is, what about the responsibility of the media and tabloid media? Because like when things were happening with Dapper Laughs, I saw a lot of articles just clickbait on Facebook just flooding me with information that he's pro-rape and things like that. It took me ages to actually go onto Google and find the actual information. So what about the responsibility <laughs> of the tabloid media? There's been a lot of talk about kind of the ease and spontaneity as an element of that mob culture, but is there not an also also an other element that perhaps accounts for some of that viciousness that you see within the mob, which is an element of 
anonymity and the fact that people aren't held to account for their actions. They are faceless and they are without responsibility. Um, I was thinking that comedians like Frankie Boyle and George Carlin, they sort of make their career around these kind of offensive jokes, jokes about 9-11, etc., etc. Um, does the panel think that there's a level of popularity or uh, offence, off- the amount of offensive jokes that you make that a comedian can do that can sort of make them immune to this mob culture? Like if Frankie Boyle made a joke now, would he get a change.org petition um, crucifying him? Or, um, yeah, that's my question, sorry. I'll be very quick. First of all, for the guy at the top that said about ITV2, all right, yeah, now you say that, it does make me think. At the beginning, when I signed a contract with them, when we spoke about it, they wanted to make the TV show as controversial as possible, right? We wanted to make it so, and when all the media started really kicking off, they loved it, right? They're, they're, they're talking about it. That's what they're like. They love it. They're talking about it. This is it. We're in the papers. We love it. Come on, everyone's talking. Everyone's watching it. You like it, you watch it. If you don't like it, you watch it to see what people are talking about. Once it got too far, right? It's done, yeah? So, yeah. So, that does piss me off. You're right. They should take some sort of responsibility. Moving on to the fella. Right. So, for instance, I put a tweet out a little while ago where I said, you know what? It's only going to be a certain point till someone actually commits suicide and kills himself over over this this kind of stuff. So yeah, so they they do need to they do need to have, have some sort of responsibility when they do, and they do cause the mob. And also coming back to the question the geezer said at the top, there about uh, sorry I'm talking a lot now about uh, about Twitter. Listen, if you're on Twitter, yeah, and you're one of these trolls that doesn't have a profile picture of themselves, it's a profile picture. Of, I don't know Hulk Hogan, right? Yeah. <laughs> And you're, you, you've, got, you've got an opinion on what I'm doing. Your, your opinion is irrelevant, right? If you have not got the bottle to talk to me about something, give me your address, right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I remember back in the day, if you were in the pub, someone come and say something to you, you slip them a fucking headbutt and say... But now t- days. Yeah. <laughs> so, like men were men. if you're a troll... If you're a troll, your opinion, I've completely gone off track now. <laughs> John, do you want to... Very quickly, quick example for you. Jeremy Clarkson, a million people signed for him to keep his job. He lost his job. Who was the mob? Where was the mob? Which one of those was the mob? Like, I don't understand where this fits in to that. So mob, again, is a pretty convenient term, I think, uh, in those spaces. I mean, that's the media has loads. Of, you know, the internet cycle is a kind of continuous. It used to be you've got the news in the morning and that developed through the day. Now it's crazy with lots of interventions. I think that's right. They do have some... You know, the shaming, doesn't it? They do some of the shaming, then they criticise people for doing the shaming, then there's columns about the shaming. And so, you know, there is... Yeah. And also back to ITV2 saying, make it as controversial as possible. You know, stick a few rape gags in if you like, <laughs> if it gets us the press, and then all of a sudden they go against it. Lots of people have lots of responsibility for these things, I think. Kathy? Uh, yeah, I, I do want to point out that I think the internet can be uh, just as it can be a sort of instrument for this instantaneous outrage based on very little fact, it can also help publicize, you know, the truth. And I think arguably it makes it easier sometimes to find out the facts. So I think there is this positive side to it. And I think one thing that's been sort of alluded to, and I, I think that is an interesting issue or an interesting aspect of this issue is when people who are behind the shaming themselves get shamed. And, you know, one uh, interesting example of that um, 
Uh, there was uh, this other um, uh, controversy involving a scientist. Uh, the wore the jumper. Uh, the, the guy with the, sh- with the shirt, Matt Taylor. Matt Taylor, the guy who, who wore the, uh, the sh- who was uh, a part of the Comet Probe team. And when he was giving an interview, he was wearing the shirt that had sort of half-naked women on it. You know, that was designed by a female friend of his, by the way. Anyway, so a woman... Um, uh, Who's I can't remember her name now, but she was a writer for the Atlantic magazine, and she was the one who originally kind of created that firestorm. She tweeted, you know, thanks for ruining the cool comet landing for me, asshole, you know, which <laughs> was really not very professional language, I suppose, for a journalist, you know, a science journalist for a magazine. But anyway, so she was the one who kind of initiated that, and then there was a lot of, uh, you know, other people attacking him. And that wasn't just a social media thing, by the way. A lot of the attacks on him were in, like, professional media. Uh, so, you know, it's not necessarily just a Twitter mob. And then she started getting attacked by people on Twitter and she claimed that she got death threats you know what I what she was talking about was thing you know so I think somebody tweeted uh, at her saying you know kill yourself and I don't know if that qualifies as a death threat or not because you know it's anyway so uh, so but you know she got some nasty reactions and, and then so, so the, this is where we really start getting into complicated questions of you know which which one is the mob you know is uh, or are there two competing mobs you know do we have you know, mobs and counter mobs, and you know, I, I think uh, I think it is a more complicated landscape than just you know the uh, the mob against the offender. Because sometimes you have defenders of the offender, you know, coming back with um, you know their side of the story. So yeah, I, I think it is it is a little more complicated, and uh, you know, in some ways, I think it may actually be less one sided than the traditional mm-hmm. mob. You know, the one with the pitchforks. So, <laughs> I'm going to set up a social network called Pitchfork. Um, so to the person who's complaining about the media, look, everyone complains about the media all the time. If you're really upset about you know, start a petition. Um, <laughs> secondly, there's a guy up the back there. I asked a question about anonymity. The problem is that from the front here, it's very hard to make out any of you. Oh. <laughs> Um, but... So many gags. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> thirdly, uh, look, the, the question about Frankie Boyle, uh, you know, comedians can and do develop, as does anyone else, um, a personal brand. Like, if you followed me on Twitter, I would hope that if I say something silly, that you'll know from following me, oh, this is the kind of crap that he always comes out with. So I think it is possible to establish yourself as someone who makes that sort of joke, but I think it's very hard to do it in a nuanced way, and very few people manage it. But when they do, they're very successful, and and Frankie Boyle is an example. I want to end, enough of the gags, as Mr. Uh, O'Reilly puts it, I want to end on a really serious point, which is that somebody in the audience threw out the word feminism as if it was um, not necessarily a good thing. Um, The internet has, you know, I was taking the mickey out of my phone earlier. The internet has 
given voice to the voiceless and to the powerless. And to the extent that it's been used as a rallying call to groups uh, and, act and actions like uh, feminism, it has done a lot of good, not exclusively, but a lot of good. And I was really pleased to hear from John earlier about the, the work that change.org is doing uh, in places like Russia, in places like hopefully soon China, where you do occasionally need a mob. I mean, let's not let's let's not forget that pre-revolutionary France wasn't a very cheerful place for a lot of people. But when we're making those comparisons, let's remember that we're not in China or Russia or pre-revolutionary France, and that in our liberal tolerant society, individuals can have an overbearing impact upon each other with mob uh, justice. So in some cases, I'm all for a good mob. But we don't, I think, live in the kind of country where mobs are, are really the thing anymore. Okay. And Josie? Yeah, I really agree with that. I don't think it's, it's any... The Twitter storm is not some kind of general representation of the mob. So it's not, we're not discussing do we, are we for mobs or against them. It's a particular kind of social formation, which is a basically um, about censoriousness becoming a political force. That's what it's about. And I think I very much agree with the point about you can't say that. You know, that's basically... It's a, it, it, that's what's behind it. And at no other point in history have there been mobs forming around this this kind of thing in this way. It's just a, it's not about kind of mobs in general. I'm, I'm for pitchforks in their kind of place, but it's about a particular kind of form. And I think that the kind of... I, I agree with Cathy that things are often more complicated, but I don't think the reaction in defending someone, I think that's a good thing, but I disagree with the revenge storm, which often happens. So the kind of... Uh, the, the finding the person who outed them to then kind of pile onto her sort of thing. So, so in a way, that's, that becomes the rhythm of the exchange, which is one pylon followed by another pylon. And that, that, that's the kind of rhythm. I, and I think that the problem is the rhythm rather than this person's right and this person's wrong. It's, this, is, this is kind of this is the, the, the way that the form of things are taking. I mean, the comet, the comet example is extraordinary, you know. It's like a man lands a probe on a comet, uh, something of... It's not a man, it's a team of men and women. A team of men and women, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and all sorts of... Yes. Um, but, you know, it's something of objective, universal significance, and we're interested in his shirt, you know. It's that, that kind of superficiality of, of, of consciousness is unbelievable. And so I think that, that's the problem. I think and that in any other era, um, that wouldn't have been the case. The reaction would have been something very different. So well, that, that was obviously mm. more important than... <laughs> it was more important that he had a naked woman on his shirt than it was that he landed the... the because... It's it's exactly. because, because that somehow seems like... It, it's, it's quicker and easier to understand. You can understand instantly. Yeah, no, we, yeah. we can... Yeah. Do you Sorry. want to wrap up? So okay, no, I'll come back later. Yeah. No, no, we have to kind of... All right, okay. Oh, yeah. oh no, one, more, one final thing then. I think, I think it's really important to hold the line. I, I think... I. UCL particularly, the way that they cut, cut Tim Hunt loose within a matter of, of, of hours and basically uh, called up his wife and said he's got to go. You know, basically, no questions, he's got to go. He's a Nobel laureate, uh, but he's got to go. And just the way that actually an academic institution can treat one of them, their own like that, which is absolutely extraordinary. So they're I think, scared of the mob culture. Because they're, they're scared of reputations, PR people running the institution. And actually, I think institutions need to hold the line. So I think I, th I say two things. Hold the line and don't apologise. When someone is the victim of this, like Tim Hunt, apologise. And it's the worst thing to do. You know, don't apologise. Because um, I think that that kind of resistance um, is, is the, the important thing, I think. So rather than a revenge storm, I think it's basically holding the line on the part of the institution and on the part of the individual. Brilliant. OK, can we thank the panel? Oh, yeah. <laughs>